0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And
1: that was Chris Gaffney. He still won't go. It's welcome back to me, Jan Outlet, and I'll be back here for 2017 and um, for two two hours, four till six on a Tuesday. Today we'll be looking at the Brunswick-Coburg anti-conscription commemoration campaign with Nancy Atkin. A report on events impacting on the people in Western Sahara with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. The importance of the UN vote on Israel settlements with George Browning, who's the former Bishop of Canberra, and he's president of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, history segment with author and historian Brian McKinlay, and another historical vote in the UN with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. The Brunswick-Coburg anti-conscription commemoration campaign has been at the forefront of bringing to the attention of not only those in the local communities, but much wider the significance of the votes Australia-wide in 1916 and 1917 to say no to conscripting young men to fight in what Archbishop Mannix described in Brunswick in January 1917 as a sordid trade war. I spoke with one of the founding members of the campaign, Nancy Atkin, and asked her when did the idea for Two years of activities to commemorate the success of the anti conscription campaign
0: begin? Well, a couple of years ago, I think people were horrified at the three billion or more dollars that the Australian government spent on commemorating the Anzac myth. And we'd looked into maybe doing some local activities and we'd asked our local Member of Parliament, who SSH was Gelvin Thompson, whether we could get some money through the federal government to commemorate some of the opposition to the war, but it was clear that that money was absolutely to be corralled into activities, I think, that celebrated or commemorated the servicemen and servicewomen, I think was the wording, something like that. So there was no way that there was any money available for any other point of view. And we were aware that the war had actually been very controversial, even today, as controversial as to its worth. So people just started talking about it and and then we kind of dragged our feet a bit and before we knew where we were, were, you know, it was 2014 and it was too late to actually talk about doing stuff around the Anzac centenary. But the other big thing, of course, that had happened during the First World War was the conscription vote. I don't know if people know Billy Hughes was Prime Minister, but he knew that he couldn't get Parliament to approve conscription for service in, in France, in Europe. So he went to a plebiscite and he was persuaded that he would when the plebiscite and people would vote to accept conscription. And he was proved wrong, despite the fact that there there were quite draconian laws about speaking out against the war that was not really freedom of speech. But in a way, maybe by having the conscription ballot, he opened up a crack and there had to be debates about it. And so it was widely debated. And the first ballot in October 2016 the first plebiscite was lost just by a small margin so then he had another go the following year in in 1917 and once again he lost but with a bigger proportion of people voting against for various reasons we started looking at activities we could do in Brunswick and Coburg just locally to commemorate that argument and that that struggle who was we a bit of a hodgepodge of, of local people who are interested in history and culture and whatever. So then we got in contact with Stuart McIntyre and, and he put us straight on a few things. And Stuart is a former professor of history from Melbourne University and a local resident. And we actually hadn't realised how important the Brunswick-Coburg area had been and that John Curtin, who was later Prime Minister, was living there. At the time he was living there, he, was, he got a full-time job at the... Uh, through the trade Hall and through the Australian Trade Union movement to work as a full-time campaigner for the no vote uh, against conscription. And there were a lot of other significant figures who lived in that district, which voted overwhelmingly against conscription. Whilst up the road at Coburg, there was a jail and many prominent people were not only in the, in the 1960s and 70s in the Vietnam War conscription debate, but earlier back then in 1916, 1917, John Curtin was in jail there. Adela Pankhurst was jailed for her anti-war activities, and many other activists were jailed over that time.
1: Were there other groups in Melbourne doing a similar thing that you were sort of connected with, or was Brunswick Coburg
0: on its own sort of or we thing? We were the leaders. No, <laughs> no. There's been lots of stuff happening over the past year. I think we knew that um, trade tour were looking at, at doing something because. If you've been in Trades Hall, there's a, there's a commemorative plaque there, plaque mural, whatever you like to call it, stuff painted on the wall, to commemorate the anti-conscription campaign there, and we knew that they were going to, going to have some activities. What about the Catholic Church? Because they were involved,
1: or sections of the Catholic Church were involved. Did you connect with yeah. anyone there?
0: The mythology of the of the anti-conscription ballot is that the people say, oh, it was because the Catholics voted against it, but in fact... I think the historians now say that's actually not true, that there was a big section probably of the Irish Catholic community who voted against it, and that increased. And the reason it increased, and that was probably significant in the bigger vote against the second referendum maybe, or one of the, the, the reasons, was because of the Easter Rising where the hierarchy of the Irish and Catholic communities in Australia, instead of kind of going along with the war and saying, oh, well, Probably, you know, it's necessary. Or not speaking out against it, turned and changed their opinion. And particularly Archbishop Daniel Mannix, who, at the end of uh, late in 1916, gave a one historic speech where he spoke out against conscription and said Australia didn't need conscription. That was before the first conscription ballot, uh, conscription plebiscite. And then in early 1917 in Brunswick which we're going to be commemorating and reenacting in a couple of weeks' time. At the end of January, he gave another speech where he is reported in some newspapers to have referred to the war as a sordid trade war.
1: And I suppose too that what you've been planning would have to be an education endeavour too because a lot of the younger generations leading up to it wouldn't have had a clue mm. of what was happening in 1916-17. Uh, I
0: think that's... One of the things we've tried to do is just to, to raise awareness, not just of what was happening but of the fact there wasn't just the First World War and people getting killed and people in Australia being sad about it, but there was, it was actually incredibly divisive back here in Australia. People were literally, there's a wonderful newspaper clipping where two women have a fight in a grocer's shop in Moreland Road, Brunswick, and one of them punches the other one on the nose and it uh, goes to court and she gets fined and faints at home presumably in horror at the size of the fine and the fact that she didn't have any money and wouldn't be able to pay it. But that shows you how. And one woman called the other one a German lover and the one who was called a German lover said she was a trade unionist. And so those sorts of little events, but also public meetings, because there was no amplification, there were no microphones, if the people you didn't agree with were holding a public meeting and you could get a good crowd to go along, you could close down their meeting just by singing and shouting and counting them out, which was counting backwards from 10 down to <laughs> to 1. And so all those sorts of things uh, were going on. And so that was, that was really what we wanted to do, to, to let people know that it was extremely controversial at the time. At the same time, there was a liveliness about it and it was despite the fact that you could end up in Pentwich for anti-war activities. A lot of the events were funny and amusing and so we, we, the more we read about it, the more we realised that these sorts of things should be, should be brought out. In regards to educational activities in the, I guess, the strict sense, we've had a series of public meetings where people have talked about particular personalities, they've talked about the role of... We had Judith Smart speaking on the role of women in, uh, during the First World War, which is really interesting, uh, and there'll be a conference next May, on May the 20th, where a lot of issues around the anti-conscription campaign will be will be discussed and reviewed, and it and, uh, should be a really interesting day. In, in the meantime, uh, one of our members, Pam Duncan, who's a very experienced secondary school history teacher, has written a, a curriculum and prepared materials, lesson materials, uh, a a unit of work I think it's called for Brunswick Secondary College students in Year 9 who, so that while they're doing the regular studies on uh, about the First World War they've actually got access to local materials and stuff that will make them ask questions about what it was like in Brunswick at the time and what was happening there and how life was affected by the war.
1: And when you're talking about the the talks that you had you've involved the local historians and Victorian historians and who often have done... PhDs or, yes. or work on,
0: yes. on this yes. issue? Yes, well Peter Love who's the President of the Labour History Society has of course written a book on Frank Anstey. Frank Anstey's the guy that the railway station's named after and he was a member of parliament for Brunswick for, for many years both in the state and federal parliaments and he was a very strong opponent of conscription, so a really interesting character. So um, people like him, as I said uh, Judith Smart who's, who's written a lot about the very interesting role of women during the war where there was a, a kind of commune set up during during 1917 when there was a, a general strike. There was what's now Story Hall it was like a commune with people sharing food and cutting each other's hair and all sorts of stuff while people were short of money when while they were on strike.
1: Also the local historical societies, have they become involved?
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. We've worked in, in particular on, uh, on uh, helping organise the... Coburg Historical Society, one of the members is helping organise the conference, and is also in the choir that's that's, uh, singing in a couple of places during January a new song about the conscription era.
1: We'll come to that in a minute. What about the local council, the support from the council? Mm.
0: Well, one of our aims was to get the council also, as well as our little community group doing stuff, to support um, or, or to help raise the issue and to support activities that would do that. So that's been also very successful. Um, a couple of the the um, the councillors, the some of our local labour councillors and also Councillor Sue Bolton put up a list of activities to the council last year and passed a resolution saying a whole stack of things should be done. And they are actually... One by one, things are are happening. The the local library has had historic walks. The Brunswick Library is going to get out some of its materials about the anti-conscription campaign and books and and posters and what have you and have them displayed, I think, later this month or early next month. The council has an annual Morris Blackburn oration, which is, or biannual, every two years, which is a kind of speech by a well-known person. And because there's... um, a link and also some money available from the Morris and Doris Blackburn, who apart from founding the law firm, Morris Blackburn was also a member of parliament and was a very, very consistent opponent to conscription, not only in the First World War, the Second World War. Anyway, so we said one of these speeches should be about the topic of war and the humanitarian effects of war and similar issues. And so that will be the topic for next year's Morris Blackburn Oration. And there's lots of other things that the Council are still looking at in terms of possible artworks, remembering some of these people. In Brunswick there's hardly anything commemorating the fact that John Curtin lived there during this important period. I think one of the, um, the Catholic Church buildings is named after him but there's nothing much else. So we're suggesting that that those names should be commemorated, whether in plaques or in whether in namings of streets or new squares or whatever. And then, of course, you've got the Anstey Railway Station. Yes, 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 which should have something on it to explain to people what that was all about. The other thing the council have helped us with, they actually gave us a one of their community grants to our group to have an, a new mm-hmm. song written and to, to run community workshops to discuss what should be in that song. So we've got this fabulous new song written by Stephen Taberner, who's a very well-known composer, choir leader, and uh, really, I think, having worked with him on this song, I think he's a genius. <laughs> so is it still a secret, or is it...? No, 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 it's not a secret. It's been... Well, we had a very small public hearing of it at the end of our workshops in December, but we've been practising now for the... The But singers festival, and then we'll be singing the song when we have our public meeting, which I'll talk about probably in a minute. Uh, with Rod Quantock reenacting Daniel Mannix with the sordid trade war speech, and this, the song is a fabulous piece because what happened was people came together in two workshops, and and they were asked just to tell each other in small groups stories about how. Wars, maybe the First World War, maybe maybe conscription during the Vietnam War, how wars had affected their family. And it was amazing that people came up with extraordinary stories. And four of those stories were chosen and became the verses for the song, which is called Ghosts Don't Lie, which is really about the ghosts of war and how they're there all the time with us and how families and generations of Australians are affected by wars. Still, mm.
1: just go back to last year again with the the play by playwright Neil Cole. I believe that he 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 was in the audience when the women's part of the anti conscription was talked about. When Judith Smart gave her talk on on the women's involvement in the anti
0: conscription movement. And he decided he'd write a play. Yes, so this was absolutely a fantastic thing. So Neil said, yes, whoo, this needs a play written about it. And he went away and he wrote a play talking about people who get things done. He wrote a play. He organised to have a, a it on at the Metanoia Theatre, which is the Frunswick Mechanics Institute. And on the suggestion of some of the people in our some of our gang, he went to Brunswick Secondary College and the play was basically performed by, it was a totally professional production, but he took to the secondary college about having some of the year seven and eight students form a little choir of young women and they sang the songs that were part of the play, which were not original songs, they were the songs of the era, which were scattered throughout the play in a way that made you realise how they had started off sort of jaunty and jingoistic and then became rather more melancholy as the war went on. And so the play was about, uh, was about two of the famous personalities, Vita Goldstein and Adela Pankhurst, and how they met and how they interacted. But there were two other characters, and one of those was Neil's grandmother, who was very conflicted about the war. Because on the one hand, I guess she may have naturally wanted to oppose the war, but on the other hand, her her sons were enlisting. Anyway, so it's, it, it talks about the kind of cut and thrust of that argument and how people followed those arguments through.
1: And also the reproduction of the posters. That was important mm, too, wasn't mm, it? Mm.
0: So... There's some fabulous posters from the time. Some of them have just got big clunky letters and uh, pretty simple and others have got this beautiful artwork from 1914. And we had the idea of getting some of them up on the streets with not too much explanation, just sort of putting them up there with the rock and roll posters. We put it out to the community through through, uh, crowdfunding, through Possible, and said, we need $2,000. And people gave us $2,000. So we worked with Placket the Poster people in Brunswick and gave them the artwork for – the. there's a famous Tom Barker poster which says two arms and then it says "Capitalist parsons, newspaper owners and tells people that when those people have <laughs> signed up, you should sign up too. And Tom Barker was actually jailed for, for this poster and he told the, told the judge there was a recruitment poster and so why was he being jailed but the judge didn't believe it. And the second poster is one that says vote no mum and it's got a picture of a woman cradling a child and it's a very sentimental style of of, of poster saying uh, don't vote mum, they'll take dad next. What happened next was that the pro-conscription people did their version of the same poster. Saying, <laughs> anyway, with a slightly more complicated argument on it. But those posters were put up all over Brunswick and Coburg and in, in the suburbs and made people kind of ask question, what the hell is this? And we had a small line on the bottom saying it was an anti-conscription poster. I should also say that 3CR had a big role in that because your um, manager, Rachel, helped us with the artwork.
1: Now this year, let's move forward a bit more for what's
0: happening. Okay, so I think I've mentioned how Moreland Council gave us the money to write a new song, and the background of that was there's an extraordinary event, once again, kind of amusing as well as interestingly historic, where Adela Pankhurst had been locked up in Pentridge for opposing the war at the end of 1917. And the newspaper report says, 40 to 60 people believed to be socialists gathered outside the jail and serenaded Miss Pankhurst with the red flag and solidarity forever. And it then goes on to describe how Within an hour or so, there were three or 400 people there and it was rowdy. And other reports say that people were letting off coloured lights and that they were cooing over the walls to let Adela know that they were out there. Eventually, the cops came and there was a scuffle and they arrested a couple of people who were bunged up, I think, for a month for, as a result. And when we saw this, it was so extraordinary. And this picture of a hot January night in Melbourne where people would be Outside their houses, it really just indicated also how different th- things were in the way that you organised in those times. People were out on the street. If you made a big racket, well, people would come to see what was going on, and I think word of mouth could get people along very quickly. So we said we have to reenact mm-hmm. this, and we'd been inspired by Stephen Taberner's flash mobs before the federal election, where he combined a choir with some horn players and uh, the horns of infinite justice and the drumletariat in a protest called Warm Is Not Cool. And so we thought, OK, we'll get a song from Steve and we'll do something outside, maybe involving those similar ingredients of choir and horns. And we were kind of thinking, well, a re-enact, just a kind of flash mobby reenactment would be great, but it would be even better if we could get some money and do... Like a little street opera we've called it, so to our astonishment once again we've we put in an application to creative Victoria and they've agreed to fund this new work, which will be performed in a couple of places at the end of this year and then on the actual date of the amazing event on the seventh of January two thousand and eighteen and the other thing I have to say is everything we've done we've had the most fantastic response for, so not only have the talks been and discussions been really well attended. The choir that we pulled together and the the workshops around creating our new song, our uh, Ghosts Don't Lie, were very well attended. We had probably 100 people come to one or the other or all of the events. And now we're in the first week of January or second week of January, depending how you count it, and we're rehearsing for the But Singers Festival and we've had fifty people say that they will come and have come to rehearsals and will come and sing the song at the but singers Festival and a substantial number of people who are going to come along at the end of January and sing the song again at the uh, the daniel mannox reenactment a <laughs> speech reenactment, so whenever we do anything, so many people are interested and want to be involved and This is the second speech by Daniel Mannix, isn't by Rod Pontokck, yes. yes, so. Last year some people might have heard about or might have attended an event in Clifton Hill where 100 years ago there was a bazaar in Clifton Hill where Daniel Mannix denounced conscription, spoke out against conscription in a very kind of cool and logical way and said it was not a good idea but didn't mention, didn't talk about the war per se. Then things kind of ramped up I suppose and so in January the following year, so January 1917, on the 28th of January, he criticised the war and called it, according to the Argus, a sordid trade war. And basically he came out against the war and apart from the Quakers, probably the first major r- head of a you know, religion or a, a section of the, um, the Christian community to speak out against, against the war. Although, of course, many working-class Catholics would have opposed, opposed the war.
1: Well, it sounds as though you're going to be very busy in uh, 2017.
0: Yes, no, we're going to be really busy. So we've got uh, we've got this meeting coming up on the 28th of January. It's it's in the afternoon, which is the time the speech was given. Mannix was opening a school, and he the speech was made in St Ambrose Hall, which is a beautiful hall, which is still standing, just behind the Brunswick Library in Dawson Street, at, between the library and the railway line. Time and it's at two p.m. So it'll start with the choir singing Ghosts Don't Lie and then Val Noon who knows everything that's to be known about Irish and Catholic history in Australia will give a brief introduction to to the background of the speech. Rod Quantock will deliver the speech which should be wonderful. If people are thinking this sounds a bit curious, Rod has actually written a play and acted uh, Mannix, played Mannix in a play about Daniel Mannix who's a very interesting character, and was a very prominent, right from that time, was a prominent person in, in Australian political history. And then uh, then there'll be discussion. And that was Nancy
1: Atkin, one of the original members of the Brunswick-Coburg anti-conscription commemoration campaign. And just a reminder again about that meeting on the 28th of January with Rod Quantock reenacting Daniel Mannix's speech when he talks about the dirty trade war I've had it on the grapevine that Rod is going to dress up as Archbishop Mannix. So that's Saturday the 28th of January between 2 and 3.30pm at St Ambrose Hall 3 Dawson Street in Brunswick not to be missed. Next reporting on events in occupied Western Sahara and the country occupying western sahara morocco with me is kate lewis from the australian western sahara association kate last year late last year we talked about the un climate conference cop 22 which was held in marrakesh morocco i believe amy goodman actually went there for that did she manage to get into western sahara
2: Yes, uh, Amy Goodman and her team were one of the very first for many months to get through as foreign journalists. They managed to speak to quite a lot of the Saharawi activists, which, of course, were closely observed by the Moroccan secret police. Then at one point they organised a demonstration... Amy Goodman and her team were having lunch at a place a few kilometres distant and they didn't understand quite what was happening but all these people turned up. In fact, what they were doing was obstructing them from getting to the demonstration and they were basically kind of held in this lunch place until after the demonstration had been dispersed. Later she found out what had happened and why they'd been held like that in that place. What were reports like? I haven't actually seen a report. They did put it on a blog. We can find the the link for that. Were they free
1: to go where they wanted to?
2: They did meet a lot of people that they wanted to and maybe they were able to put their reflections and interviews and so on, on to this blog. There was a a
1: journalist from The Guardian who was also in Morocco. Did he try and get into Western
2: Sahara as well? He commented that he wasn't going to try his luck, that he just went as far as he could within Morocco itself to Tafaya, which is pretty much on the border with Western Sahara. He reported from there.
1: And what was the issue in that town? It was the wind farms.
2: Yes, he was talking about the way in which Morocco is trying to greenwash its presence in Western Sahara by allowing all these foreign companies to build massive wind farms. And some of them are in Morocco itself, and some of them are starting to be built in Western Sahara have there been demonstrations in
1: Western Sahara against them because they wouldn't have had any say in the fact that they were being built?
2: No, and in fact, a little bit later, there was a, a meeting advertised by a foreign company that was wanting to develop alternative energy in what we call the Occupied Territory in, in Western Sahara. It was a public open meeting, And so, of course, the Sahadawis thought that they would go and put their point of view. But they were intercepted by police in the streets around where this meeting was being held in a big hotel. And they weren't allowed to attend the meeting by the Moroccan police.
1: Well, moving on to December, there was the anticipation of the retrial of the Yidim Izik political prisoners. And that was to be on the 26th of December. It didn't go
2: ahead. Why was that? They did have a whole day of hearings, but they didn't actually get on to the trial itself. There was a lot of preliminary issues being discussed. First of all, the families of the Moroccan victims who were killed in that dismantling of the mass protest camp, they were making representations to be able to make a presence in the court and to be able to plea for their position. Then there were other matters as well that were being taken up. One of the foreign lawyers, there were three foreign lawyers who were admitted who had come from France and Spain. They were there to represent the political prisoners? To represent the Sahrawi prisoners. So an awful lot of time was Wasted taking, discussing what language they could talk in, and whether they could. It was permissible to speak French. Of course, most Moroccans understand French perfectly well, but at crucial times, they insisted that they should. Their contribution should be translated, and that allowed the uh, interpreter to interpret in in a sort of very broad way what they were saying and to exclude nasty words like torture or united nations from what was being said but prior to that when yes when they was speaking every time they met said torture because the one of these lawyers was putting the case for anama asfari saying that his confessions were obtained under torture and that the United Nations Committee uh, Against Torture and Inhumane Treatment had condemned th- this practice and had said there should be a thorough investigation into all these allegations of torture. Every time United Nations or torture was being mentioned, the, gov- the judge would interrupt, the or the microphone would suddenly break down. There would be a ten-minute break while they got the technical hitch rectified and so it actually took 2 hours for this lawyer to present a few simple sentences along the lines i just said that the, that the confessions had been obtained under torture that the united nations had condemned it that there should be an investigation so it was a very farcical in that way the moroccans had tried to make it look as if they were allowing foreign observers that they were interpreting, that they had translation into four different languages, but not all of them were operating all of the time. A lot of the time the observers, because I've now read a report by a Portuguese observer, who said that they were talking just sort of between the front row and the bench very quietly and you couldn't catch what was being said. At all, and so the, even the lawyers sometimes had difficulty understanding what was being said, let alone the prisoners. And the prisoners themselves were being held in a glass cage, it was described as a cage, it was completely impervious to sound, they couldn't hear anything. Then, some of them whose health permitted, because a lot of them are extremely weak from their long incarceration and their hunger strikes and all of that, and their general health which hasn't been treated properly. The ones who felt able to do so were eventually allowed to go out, but they had to stand. And so some of them stood for some hours listening to the second part of the proceedings. There is a consortium of lawyers, international lawyers, 50 or so from a number of uh, of countries, uh, in mostly European countries, but there is a, America is also represented. They have made a statement, and one of their claims that they're going to try and present is that the offences took place in Western Sahara, so they should be tried in the country where the offences took place. Whether they'll make any progress with that, who knows. But there's a lot of procedural things like that that have been happening prior to the actual trial itself. But uh, this Portuguese person comments that a number of violations that took place even in that preliminary hearing, for example, not being able for the accused not to be able to hear or participate at all in their own trial. Breaches different items of, of of international law. The quality of the translation was poor, and all of these these things mean that it there was no presumption of innocence on the prisoners. They applied. I think they applied to be um, released until the postponed trial took place, and that was not allowed either. We are um, waiting to hear next week on the 23rd of January it's supposed to resume and we will. there will be another chapter in this sorry tale.
1: But well, uh, it doesn't
2: bode well for the future if the first day went like that, does it? No, it doesn't. Moroccans just do whatever they can get away with and apparently there was a big campaign in the Moroccan media before the trial and they were trying to convey to the Moroccan public that these people were common criminals, common law criminals, and they were not political prisoners. And then, of course, when they came into the court, they were shouting their uh, slogans, which are basically, uh, there is no solution except self-determination and all of that kind of thing, and no surrender kind of Labadi, Labadi, they say. Moroccans were trying to pretend that that was all fake, and that they were <laughs> were really criminals that were posing as political activists. Yes.
1: And do those prisoners have access to lawyers, whether they're Western Saharan
2: lawyers or the foreign lawyers that have come in? I think so. Had family visits, and I'm pretty sure that the lawyers can get in. Whether the foreign lawyers can get to actually meet with them and talk with them, I'm not sure.
1: Well, if this is a bit of a farce for the first day, you must
2: imagine what the the court, the military court must have been like. Oh, that was, yes, that was much worse, yes. Well, it's, it's not exactly cosmetic because it's not uh, showing a very pretty face at the moment. But, but they uh, don't seem to care. They don't seem to care. and And this is the, one of my our supporters in the Australian Western Sahara campaign said there's a kind of shamelessness about the Moroccans. That That's a very good, apt term to use. And it goes together with the smugness that they show at the impunity that they have, that they just get away with all of this. Very annoying because the rest of the time they are making out that they are reforming a lot of their human rights and giving people more say in everything. And unfortunately, it's absolutely not true.
1: You mentioned just before the UN Committee Against Torture condemning Morocco, and that relates to one of those 23 Gadim Izzik prisoners, the torture.
2: Yes. They, well, that, that particular person, Anama Asfari, has a french wife that has enabled them to enlist the help of the um, uh, french lawyers and the an association that has given them a lot of support is called acat which stands for the christian association against torture and it was the, the one of the the lawyer who was pleading was, was pleading it just for him which he can able to do because of that reason and because of a sort of old colonial thing that used to exist that the French can plead in a Moroccan court and so on. But as soon as they said what went for Asfari uh, went for all of the prisoners, then they were pulled up by the judge and said, no, you're just talking about Asfari. But of course, nearly all of them had confessions extracted from under torture. The other ironic thing about, or not ironic really, just uh, blatant contradiction in Asfari's case is that he was accused of crimes that took place at the breakup of the camp, namely the death of some of these young uh, Moroccan security agents. But he was actually arrested the day before that happened and he was being held in custody on that day. The, the claim of having caught him in Flagrante was clearly completely absurd and that was another plank of his case. That doesn't apply to the others. That, that particular one doesn't apply to the others. And
1: what does it mean to have a condemnation from a UN committee? Hopefully
2: it means something, but if the court won't take any notice of it and the justice system won't instigate an investigation into the claims of torture. Maybe it sounds better than it actually is, but we we hope that it does count for something because the UN, you know, imperfect though it might be, it's the only thing we've got, the only one we've got. What about the Court of Justice of the
1: European Union, their judgement, which has been seen as the next most important moment in international law since 1975? What's the issue there?
2: About a year ago, the European Court ruled that the a tr- special trade agreement between Morocco and the European Union should be suspended because it hadn't been made clear that it was just with Morocco and it, they were including the territories of Western Sahara as well and they were trading in goods from Western Sahara, the fish, the phosphate and tomatoes and agricultural produce grown in the south. Moroccans were were very angry about this. They managed to persuade certain European countries to appeal, which they did, and the appeal was eventually heard also just before Christmas. ruling was that the agreements couldn't apply to Western Sahara because it is not part of Morocco. So that is generally a good outcome. Well, that's pretty definite to say that it's not part of Morocco. Absolutely. It's absolutely crucial. And so what's happened now, right now, there's a challenge being put immediately to this ruling, and a ship called the Key Bay, which has transported fish oil before now, is again bringing fish oil from El Ayun. It loaded uh, just on the 7th, I think, of of January, it came into port. It left Las Palmas a couple of days ago and it's due in the French port of Faycon in about four days' time. That will be the first challenge to this ruling by the European Court.
1: I'd imagine that members of Orson might have... Informed in pivot of
2: this judgment, a letter is being constructed as we speak, yes, they will informed of this judgment and its implications for the phosphate trade in Australia
1: and they're the only one now in Australia that's taking
2: phosphate yes, others the two other importers have seen the light, as one might say, the West Farmer's subsidiary in fertilisers called csBP. They have suspended their imports and impact fertilisers, which is based in Tasmania, but also distributes in on the East Coast. They decided some while ago also not to import. So it's only Incitec Pivot that is left trade in stolen goods. On a different issue,
1: a trade unionist, an important trade unionist, has passed in Western Sahara?
2: That's right. He was... Um Really, the key figure in the trade union movement in Western Sahara is called Sidi Ahmed Edia. He was uh, getting on a bit, I think, yes, nearly 70, but they believe his death was precipitated by a very rough handling that he got in a demonstration a few years ago, which uh, resulted in heart attack, and he had open heart surgery twice in spain uh, as a result and a long recuperation and it seems as if it was a heart problem that recurred just on the uh, at the beginning of the year and, and today i've just received notice that uh, the ituc the international trade union congress has written a note of condolence Signed by Sharon Burrow, who is the general secretary now of uh, that international body, Uh, also has also sent its condolences, but they've received many many others from all over the world, because he uh, did take his fight uh, 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 abroad. He did use the international solidarity network of the trade of the union movement, attended conferences in. Spain and Portugal and Belgium and other places received delegations from those countries, although they were often prohibited by the Moroccans, they were turned away or they were expelled if they did get through. So he was right in the thick of all of that. This was because he himself was had been a worker at boucra, which is the phosphate company the Spanish set up. He was there in the colonial days working under a Spanish contract and when the Moroccans took over the phosphate mine they dismissed a lot of the Saharawi workers some of whom were not just labourers but they were in the higher echelons of technicians and, and so on. They um, were just laid off without their pensions, without their uh, severance pay or, or whatever Edia was very instrumental in marshalling all these cases and bringing them to the notice of the phosphate company. He had a long-standing fight with them. He never gave in to the Moroccan blackmail or attempts to strong-arm them in what way ever way they could, and he had these lists of people who had had different uh, causes for complaint. They might have been workers' compensation due to injury at work or all kinds of things. But he, he took his struggle on a wider scale as well and he would actually go to the Moroccan authorities in Rabat. At one stage they had a body they called the... Uh, oh, it was a kind of a peace and reconciliation body that was supposed to be righting the wrongs of the time under Hassan II and he would pursue all those cases where they they might have been granted something but nobody had ever seen any of the compensation come through so he would go with a little posse of, of uh, fellow unionists to Rabat and argue the case. So there's pictures of him with Christopher Ross, the UN Secretary General's personal envoy for Western Sahara always at the forefront of anything that was going that where saharawi rights could be um, claimed he was the chair too of the gadami zik coordination so yes that you know he that came into the picture and yes he's really quite a kingpin of of all of that movement his loss will be deeply felt among the saharawis in the occupied territory finally kate
1: Good news for Australia in March, the visit to both Adelaide and Melbourne of Aziz Ibrahim.
2: Oh, yes, we're really delighted that a Saharawi singer is coming to again to WOM Adelaide. Her only other performance in Australia will be at the Brunswick Music Festival. She's c- going to be singing on the 16th of March at Brunswick Town Hall. You can book online, but if you would like to support orsa and we can help you as well by giving slightly reduced tickets uh, price tickets the way to do this would be to write to us by email to orsa.victoria at com, a-w-s-a dot victoria at com, and say how many tickets you want and Uh, We'll write back and let you know how to pay and um, be able to send you a ticket through email. Well, she's kind of taken on the mantle, really, of the voice of the Sahrawi people, which was the little uh, uh, tagline of uh, Mariam Hassan, who came to uh, WOMAD uh, about five or six years previously, sadly died only last year, of a cancer that she would was receiving treatment for even really while she came here. So she was very brave woman. Aziza is slightly younger, got a slightly different style from Maryam Hassan because her own personal history is that she was educated in Cuba as well as uh, having spent quite a bit of time in Spain, where she currently lives, because it's a lot easier for her to do all her touring and traveling from Barcelona. So she's living in Spain. And so, and she's got some Spanish people, guitarists, among her backing group. And her style is a little bit more fusion style than the very traditional songs. But uh, she. In the traditional way, she plays the, the drums, the hand drums, and she sings. Yeah. The uh, men play the guitars and percussion and other accompaniments. Aziz has got five. So we're very excited about that, and we hope that a lot of people will be able to come and enjoy Happy Night with Saharawis with the enjoying their culture.
1: I'm sure it will be a Happy Night. In Brunswick in March, so if you'd like tickets, it's a w s a. dot Victoria, the whole word Victoria, at gmail dot com. So that's a w s a. dot at gmail dot com, and that's a pretty special night in Brunswick. But if you're going to the WOMAD in Adelaide, you might be able to catch her there as well. And that's Kate Lewis talking.
3: Tune in from twelve midday on Friday, the twentieth of January, for a live broadcast from the Tunna and Moor Hena commemoration. It's 175 years since the execution of the two freedom fighters, Tunna and Moorboy Hena, executed on the twentieth of January 1842. The site on the corner of Franklin and Victoria Streets is now marked with a memorial. From midday, on Friday the 20th January, the Tuna and Moor Hina Commemoration Committee will hold a public ceremony. Join the crowd from midday, or listen to the live broadcast from 12 to 1pm. Tell me how legends are made
1: And it's welcome to 2017 to historian and author Brian McKinlay.
3: It's impossible, I think, this week, of all weeks and uh, at this time, not to mention that terrible word, Trump, uh, because although not yet president, only a few days remain, he is um, being more outrageous and more extraordinary than even his critics thought possible. What strikes me in particular as really bizarre as the word, or weird, as the kids would say, is his attitude to Europe and the European community. A few months ago, during his campaign, he had that nasty little Sauvage, who was the leader of the Brexit exit campaign in Britain, to uh, the United States. And Sauvage, actually, is British, of course, but he's leader of UKIP and uh, a member of the European Parliament. But he led the campaign, which triumphed over the major British political parties, and brought down Cameron, the Tory PM, in a remarkable way. Now, we all know about Brexit, the words gone into the vocabulary, but Trump made no secret of the fact that he thought it was a great idea. Trump said he was opposed to international bodies and countries could keep their sovereignty. And that seems to be his view of international affairs. Even more extraordinary, a couple of days ago, again speaking about Brexit, two things happened. Firstly, he had a private visit, which was to be a secret visit, but has now leaked out, from the leader of the far-right group, uh, Marie Le Pen, in France, to Washington, New York, rather, uh, where he is currently residing. Le Pen uh, is the daughter of a neo-fascist father, and her policies are extremely nationalist and anti-European, and have been getting about 20 to 25% of the vote in France, where she's captured a lot of working class votes, as did Brexit in Britain, because of the unpopularity of the socialist government in France, which has had a pretty unpopular, not to put it disastrous, career. She is doing very well in the public opinion polls. To prevent her becoming president and doing a kind of Trump in France, the second round of the French elections will have to see the socialists probably urge their supporters to vote for one of several conservative candidates. Although there is a new man, a progressive, who has been a minister in the socialist government but has left the socialist party... And he will be running and may well get to be one of the candidates. What happens in France, they have a first election and the two leading candidates then get up to contest the second election. This means that the Pen will probably be one of the candidates and probably one of the Conservatives. So then the left-wing vote will helped to keep her out of power. But anyway, she made her trip this week secretly, but was spotted visiting Trump Tower. It's interesting that Trump has an affinity with these extreme right-wingers in Europe, I mean, far right-wing. He then unburdened himself to the view that the European community was probably going to collapse. Now, no one has suggested this. I mean, Britain may leave. But there are still some 20-odd countries in the European community, none of them making moves to leave. And he suggested, oh, well, it might collapse. That would probably be a good thing because, he added extraordinarily, the European community is dominated by the Germans. Now, that is true in as much as Germany is the biggest nation and by far the richest. Germany has the world's third largest economy, also... The Germans are pretty brilliant at all sorts of manufacturing things. If you think about the German goods you might buy or see for sale, they're always top of the market. German cars are beyond the pocket of most of us, and it's true of German technology and everything from German hardware to German kitchenware and so on. Now, Germany does dominate the European community and Angela Merkel, its long-standing leader, has been uh, probably the most prominent European figure. But Trump's attack on Germany uh, has been met with complete silence from the German government. But it nevertheless is an extraordinary event. Just as his attacks on the European community have been met with horror and shock in Brussels... Now, whatever you say about the European community, it's achieved something that people always thought was impossible. And it's brought about a single European community, and many of your listeners will have done, as I've done, travel to Europe and travel these days across borders without border inspections or passports or anything else, so that Europe is, like Australia, one country despite regional governments. This is one of the great achievements of the European community because we all know that both world wars originated in Europe and came from European conflicts. By the way, talk about Trump, if I might diverge for a moment, I came across an extraordinary figure the other day about his election. One-sixth of black men who voted, voted for Trump. Now, that's be- beyond my comprehension. One third of Hispanics, men and women, voted for Trump. And 52% of white women voted for him. Now, that's despite uh, the evidence of his endless womanising and his sexist, sexual, I think is probably the better word, statements about how he had his way with certain women. So one would assume that there were pressures in America That made people think they didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton. Ultimately, of course, she got more votes. And Clinton and several independents finished up with 54% of the national vote. And yet, Trump at 46% won because of the um, curious system of votes based on the states, what's called the Electoral College. Indeed, in three states Ohio, wisconsin and pennsylvania less than one percent of the vote in each state would have given hillary a, a majority in the electoral college but trump talks of it by the way as a landslide he's a man who, who not only tells lies and makes outrageous statements but simply ignores factual evidence now his attack on the european community is an attack on a body that came into existence after world war Two with with the terrible memory of Europe's conflicts in the minds of European leaders. Take one leader, for instance, in post-war France, after the liberation in 1944-45, France was led by General Charles de Gaulle. Now, de Gaulle was an, a complex figure, basically a conservative, but not a fascist. That's proved, of course, because he fled to Britain in 1940 when France fell to the Nazis, and led what was called the Free French from exile and returned to France in triumph in 1944 with the liberation of France and set up a government in and after the liberation of Paris and became president for a number of years. De Gaulle was one of those men. He, he remarked once that his father had lived to see the Franco-Prussian War had been alive as a young man at the time of the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, which was the trigger in many ways for the events that led up to World War I. And then World War II followed, and de Gaulle made it clear that like many Europeans, many of them people who'd been with him in the resistance in France and elsewhere, they wanted to see a new Europe, and indeed Churchill supported this, though Britain didn't join till much later it was in a modest way called the european union what's now called the european union it was known as the common market to begin with and it included only half a dozen countries germany and france and italy among them and the three low countries belgium holland and luxembourg that expanded because of its success to become what we know now as the european union given that the European leaders in the 50s and 60s all had these terrible memories of World War II, it made sense. It's now created a community, a European economic community, that's about, well, a larger population than the United States of America. Some American politicians have always disliked the European community because they saw that it had gradually become a very... Large organization and even begun to rival America in terms of its power, though not its military power. It's also, of course, had conflicts with the Russians, who, even with the fall of Gorbachev and the Communist Soviet Union, the Russians still have all sorts of differences with European countries. And historically, going back centuries, the Russians have always uh, had an idea that they might dominate Europe and didn't like the idea of the European community as such. I should mention uh, centenary events because three years ago I mentioned the outbreak of World War I in a series of programs. And then in 15 and 16 I looked at the events of the second and third year of the First World War. 1917 is in fact the most crucial, in a sense, of that terrible period because it saw a number of events. And I know you've got a speaker on the conscription referendums. Oddly enough, Australia was one of the first countries where the labour movement took up the anti-war, anti-conscription message brought down a right-wing Labor government led by Billy Hughes, a terrible right-wing politician and an imperialist of the worst kind and a warmonger too. But the conscription referendum in September 1916 was defeated by a remarkable coalition of the left of the Labour Party, the trade unions, the Catholic Church, led by Dr Mannix, the Archbishop of Melbourne, uh, who was inspired, if that's the word, uh, outraged, I think is probably the word I'm looking for, by the events in Ireland and the uprising which the British crushed in Ireland. All of those events conspired And in late 1916, the conscription, the first referendum, a second one was held later. Hughes didn't take no for an answer, kept Australians from adopting conscription. Indeed, Australia can be pretty proud of the fact that it led the world. But in Europe, by the end of 1916 and the first months, 1917, everywhere there was a great uh, conflict taking place as groups many of them repressed by governments by censorship took up the anti-war banner as it were in britain for instance the british government jailed people who spoke out against the war conscientious objectors were jailed with hard labor those sections of the labor movement in 1917 in britain who were anti-war were bitterly persecuted and the same was done in france and in germany on the other side but everywhere the feeling that the war was endless after two and a half years after millions of casualties there wasn't even a framework for negotiations The, the country that collapsed first and collapse is the only word was of course russia And I did look last year at some of the events of 1917. But in Russia, by the end of 1916, Russia was on the verge of famine. And the worst time of the year was the winter because of the shortage of fuel caused by the overburden of the railway system, the shortage of firewood and coal, All of those things brought great hardship in the cities and indeed brought a shortage of the most basic foodstuffs because millions of men had been killed already on the Eastern Front and millions of men had been taken away from farmland work. Russia was 85% peasantry and uh, the Russian peasantry were the key source of manpower for the army and out of this came the fact that women, children, old people had to try and maintain the farms and food production fell drastically. By early 1917 there were deep food shortages occurring everywhere and in March, in the first week of March 1917 this suddenly erupted in St. Petersburg then the capital of Russia over what were called the bread Riots and they were literally that. I mean, bread is the most basic food. And to the Russians, um, a a particular kind of hard black bread, as they call it, it's really not black, but it's a a beautiful bread. If you've been to Russia, you'll know what I mean. A beautiful wholemeal bread is the absolute staple. And in 1917, it was the main food of most Russian working and labouring families. But it became desperately scarce. And angry women believed, and they were probably right from evidence, that the bakers were holding back the bread and releasing it in small quantities to push up the price, which had made it almost unbearable for ordinary working people. And so the bread riots occurred. Women demonstrated around St. Petersburg, outside the bakeries. Uh, Then they broke into them, found bread, distributed to the crowds. And within a few hours, this spread all over the capital. And it occurred the next day. This was winter, of course. You don't demonstrate overnight in the streets of St. Petersburg in the Russian winter. But the following day, the same events occurred. I recall reading an account of a Russian aristocrat who was attending a a dinner party, dance, whatever. Despite the hard conditions, the aristocracy was living well. And looking out of the window of this palatial house, into the street below, he suddenly realised the street was full of women marching along, singing the Marseillaise. Now, that's a significant song to sing, given the revolutionary moment that was occurring. And they, of course, kept the uh, rioting up on the second and third day. And on the third day, they attacked police stations. The police ran away... And they were joined now by mutinous soldiers because many of the soldiers in the city were husbands and brothers of many of the women on the streets. And suddenly there was revolution. The Tsar, as it turned out, wasn't in the capital. He'd gone off to the battlefront to encourage his armies. The royal family were in their palace. But all over the city, revolutionary groups took over. There was no real organisation nor a revolutionary government of any kind. But the Tsar was trapped, and several of the political leaders of the day realized that the only thing that would end the conflict on the streets would be his abdication. And they went down to a town called Puskov, where he was stranded because the railway workers had dug up the railway lines and refused to let his train go back to St. Petersburg. And there he was stranded. Without much ado, he abdicated, and abdicated on behalf of his son, who was a hemophiliac. And so the dynasty suddenly ended. After 404 years, the Romanovs, probably the longest reigning family in history, were gone. And uh, even though the throne was briefly offered to one of his cousins, Michael, Michael very wisely rejected the offer. And Russia no longer had a monarch. It was a month before the Duma, a kind of parliament, and the Russian parliament today is called the Duma, could assemble. It was a pretty ineffectual parliament. But nevertheless, the Duma was called and that proclaimed the republic. And this event shook Europe everywhere. In Australia... The events were a remarkable extent. So much so that when newsreel cinemas showed shots of these events, Billy Hughes, the Prime Minister now of a Conservative government, used his power to, uh, censorship power, to prevent the showing of newsreels that showed the events in Russia. And all over the world, but all over Europe, people saw that one country, one people, had revolted against the war. And the events of the next 12 months in Russia were to unravel Russia's participation in World War I. Out of that came the Soviet Union later and a worldwide communist movement that sought revolution everywhere. Europe, in the next 18 months, as the war ended in 1918, Europe would be plunged into conflict, revolution, an internal uh, revolt which would never uh, cease in a sense and would lead on in the 1920s and 30s to the rise of fascism and Nazism in Germany. After World War II, which was in a way a product of all these events, the European leaders, De Gaulle and others, saw that there had to be some sort of European union of of a kind to avoid these terrible events of the past and out of that came the european common market and what we now know as the european union the attacks on the european union and on germany in particular in the last few days won't surprise any of us i suppose i have an idea that donald trump knows very little about history and knows pretty much knows nothing about politics and world affairs. His whole life up till now has been as a property speculator and his wealth, which is much in doubt anyway, his wealth has been made by a series of shonky events, by trickery, by outright fraud and trumpery. Trumpery is a good word, by the way. It means fraud. And all these events have been part of his life. I saw a recent program about how he'd built Trump Towers and defied all the New York housing and building regulations, demolishing a building on the spot that had asbestos. He concealed that. He got workers in and never paid them properly. They didn't know they were handling asbestos. Trump Tower was built on the blood and sweat of workers, many of whom got asbestosis later. And Trump concealed all this from the New York building authorities, who later found out and took action. But, of course, he's a master of court action, and uh, nothing came of it, really. That's the sort of event that has marked the whole of his life. He isn't a politician, uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing as a matter of opinion but he knows little about anything beyond that narrow world. His conflicts with China, which we might look at in another program, are based on, I think, a complete ignorance of how the present arrangements with China and Taiwan came about under another Republican, by the way, Richard Nixon, brought forward what was called the One China Policy.
1: Interesting times ahead, I think, and that was Brian McKinley, who's an author and historian, and Brian's segments on the program every couple of weeks. You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR. You can be listening on your radio, on your computer, 3cr.org.au, streaming, podcasting, all wonderful things that you can find if you go to 3cr.org.au, or you can be just listening on your favourite radio, 8.55am or digital Three
3: Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Centre in St Kildare. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going,
4: Ah! Ah!
3: Ah! That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you
5: heard it first on 3CR. I'm
1: joined now by journalist and researcher... Nick McClellan. We have been talking about a, a vote in the UN last December which was focused on Palestine and Israel, but there was another vote, a significant vote in December.
5: Yes, just two days before Christmas, the UN General Assembly approved what's really a historic resolution on nuclear disarmament. What's been agreed by the UN is that there will be in 2017, starting in March this year, negotiations for a treaty to ban nuclear weapons. It's a really significant shift. Historically, negotiations on disarmament have been held between the major powers. U.S.-Soviet talks on START negotiations, for example, or Gorbachev and Reagan talking to, uh, in, in Iceland in the 1980s to, to remove certain types of weapons. Or they've been stuck in the Committee on Disarmament, which is the global negotiating body that frankly hasn't done anything for two decades. You know, there are no active negotiations underway in the world to ban nuclear weapons. And we've seen the development of treaties in other weapons classes that have come together to address things like landmines, cluster munitions chemical weapons, biological weapons, there are international and binding treaties to stop the use of these sorts of weapons. doesn't always work, but it certainly sets a global standard and mechanisms to verify, to monitor, to act if people do breach that treaty. So the idea of having a similar treaty to delegitimise and ultimately move towards the abolition of nuclear weapons has been talked about for some time. This UN vote, therefore, is really historic, because it sets us on a path to starting negotiations. Just
1: talk a little bit about the, that background, how it got to this stage.
5: Well, it's come out of a, a, a movement that really partly was generated in Australia. For a long time, this idea has been tossed around. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, ICANN, which originally began in Australia but now has an international network with officers in Europe and elsewhere, has been pushing this idea for some time. And indeed, there's been a series of activist and academic conferences mapping out what a treaty might look like, um, what sort of clauses would be involved, what verification would you need to ensure that people weren't cheating, all those sort of technical questions. It's gained real momentum, though, in recent years because there's been a lot of work done around the humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons. Part of the idea of any weaponry is that there should be laws for war you know, the Geneva Conventions, going back to Red Cross principles from the earliest days, things like don't kill prisoners, don't torture people, you know, that women, children and non-combatants should be protected, don't bomb hospitals. And once again, these laws are breached often in warfare, but they do set norms that people are supposed to hold to. And we've seen around nuclear weapons the same issues about proportionality. You know, you shouldn't be attacking... uh, all sorts of people, just because you're targeting one building for military purposes. And so there's been a movement to address these humanitarian issues. The Red Cross, Red Crescent movement came on board after resolutions in 2010, 2011. So the whole Red Cross movement, Red Crescent movement all around the world is now campaigning on the issue of humanitarian impacts because they know that there'd been no humanitarian response to a nuclear war. There was a series of three conferences, first in Oslo, then in Nayarit, in Mexico, and thirdly in Austria, to you know, have governments sit around with non-government activists, community members and so on, talking about these issues. And coming out of the Austria conference, there was the feeling that we shouldn't just keep talking about this, we should do something about it. And so a resolution was crafted proposing that let's just not talk, let's take action, let's move towards negotiation of a binding international treaty. And so the resolution went through the the First Committee of the UN uh, earlier this year and was voted on two days before Christmas, with a vote of 113 in favour, 36 against, and 13 countries abstaining. And so support was strongest amongst the nations of Africa, of Latin America, the Caribbean, Southeast Asia, the Pacific, but also mid-level powers, quite a mixture of countries, Austria, Brazil, Ireland, Mexico... Nigeria, South Africa, countries that obviously don't hold nuclear weapons themselves are very much in support of moving. We can't just wait for the nuclear powers to get off their ass and negotiate for nuclear disarmament. Indeed, most nuclear weapon states are modernising and enhancing their arsenals rather than reducing them. Therefore, it's really important for other countries in the world, non-nuclear states, to take action and to create a framework that will eventually delegitimise the use of these weapons.
1: Do I need to ask you where Australia stood on this?
5: No, you don't need to ask because we all know Australia tails the coat for the United States in international forums. Um, we do often America's dirty work in multilateral negotiations. Uh, we've seen that on climate policy. We're seeing it again now in this case. At the uh, the previous uh, vote in the, the U- UN committee system, Australia put up a counter-resolution to counter the motion that was put forward by this broad coalition, particularly of developing, but also of many European mid-level states. We only got 19 votes for our counter-resolution. So we voted uh, no um, at the General Assembly on the 23rd of December with Julie Bishop saying that we believe that this would not help the cause of disarmament. You know, Australia is isolated in the Asia-Pacific region on this question. The only country that voted with Australia to vote no in the Pacific was the Federated States of Micronesia, which has a defence treaty uh, with the United States that obliges us to vote that way. But if you look at the list of co-sponsors who you know not only voted for the motion but co-sponsored the motion, putting it forward, little countries like Indonesia, New Zealand, Thailand, the Philippines, Samoa, Palau, countries all around our region, all of our neighbours, including New Zealand including Indonesia, including Thailand and the Philippines and so on, all of pretty much Southeast Asia and the Pacific, voted yes. And Australia stood alone with the United Nations in our region to vote no.
1: And, of course, all those countries that you mentioned have been the supporters of the United States.
5: Absolutely. And and the only other country in our region really to vote no is Japan. Like Australia, Japan believes in the policy of extended nuclear deterrence, that the military alliance we have with the United States is a nuclear alliance. It's based on our countries providing uh, the infrastructure to allow the deployment of nuclear weapons. In Australia, obviously, Pine Gap, the provision of port facilities so that nuclear-armed ships can transit through Australia between the Pacific and Indian Oceans. Uh, The whole command, control and communications network that Australia is linked in through a series of of satellite uh, communications bases and so on. Similarly, in Japan, the major um, bases in Okinawa, Uh, Yosukuna and other places around Japan, Kadena, Australia and and Japan really in our region are very much integrated into the nuclear alliance with the United States and will probably be um, at the tail end of the process. But what's interesting and the real challenge for Australia is whether we will participate in the negotiations. Even if we're opposed to the motion, whether we'll actually go in. Japan and other some some other European countries um, that voted no against having the against the negotiations have said that they will participate in the negotiations, Japan and the Netherlands. Um, at this stage, Australia hasn't made clear whether or not it will, will even join in the negotiations. I think they will, like with the climate negotiations, as Julie Bishop will send in a team to go and stuff up the negotiations to delay, to deny, to halt the momentum towards nuclear abolition. But I think uh, the tide is turning. And I think it's going to be very stark in the next few years. With negotiations this year, we'll be allying ourselves with President Trump in a whole series of foreign policy adventures. And the choice will be pretty stark. And I think for Australian citizens, who've not really been focused on nuclear weapons issues, uh, going back to the days of the P&D, People for Nuclear Disarmament, in the 1980s, I think we're going to find pretty rapidly that the whole nuclear issue will be put on the table once again. And this is tied very much to the connection between the nuclear state, the nuclear weapons state, and also the promotion of uh, nuclear power. Nuclear industries, nuclear power industries, have often been used to cross-subsidise the nuclear weapons infrastructure in countries like France, in Britain certainly. And uh, as there's now significant debates about the cost of energy systems with nuclear reactors creating during the 1960s, 70s and 80s, now um, getting to the end of their their um, safe operating systems. There's going to be a real question about taxpayers being asked to continue to subsidise the nuclear industry, which provides such a cross-subsidisation and fertilisation, obviously nuclear materials, for the nuclear weapons powers. This battle is, I think, in the next few years going to hot up, and obviously uh, with President Trump in the White House, and there's going to be some pretty stark choices to be made. It also raises questions Australia is a signatory to the Rarotonga Treaty for a South Pacific nuclear-free zone. Already we're moving to breach our obligations under that treaty by selling uranium to India. India's not a party to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. India is a nuclear weapons state, and we're busy selling uranium to the Indians who don't even accept the NPT, which is a pretty weak international protection against proliferation of weapons. And yet we've signed on. Once again, this is an issue that's really going to separate us from our Pacific neighbours. And you can see that in the voting. Everyone, bar the federal states of Micronesia, voted yes in favour of negotiations commencing uh, in March this year. There'll be two rounds in late March and again in June, July, with uh, real momentum to get a treaty. Obviously, the nuclear powers won't sign it. They'll do everything they can to sabotage it. We already know that. There were some leaked documents um, that the Americans sent to all NATO members last October when the issue was being discussed at the UN First Committee. The US urged all its allies to oppose the resolution and boycott the negotiations. Now already a number of countries, even those that don't agree with the treaty, have said that they will participate in the negotiations. So we're going to see some some real questions about Australia's role, whether we're willing to um, uh, look at the region around us or whether we're just willing to abide by uh, US nuclear strategy, which ultimately is is threatening uh, first strike against other countries.
1: What's known about the numbers of nuclear weapons in the world today?
5: Well, they've certainly reduced in terms of numbers since the peak in the 1980s, where there was a massive number of nuclear weapons. Today, the United States has reduced its arsenal to about 7,000 nuclear weapons. The problem is that we've seen particularly the United States and the Soviet Union, which have, the Russia now, uh, which had the, the largest number of weapons, have certainly reduced them in pure numbers. But what we've seen has been the modernisation of weapons. And so they've gotten rid of a whole lot of old classes of nuclear weapons and certain types of missiles that were costly to maintain, that uh, had terrible safety records, were indeed really unusable. And so um, there was a famous incident uh, you know, going back uh, some decades where you know a workman working in a silo of a Minuteman missile dropped a spanner punctured the fuel tank and the actual missile, the fuel, exploded blowing the warhead out of the concrete silo. didn't actually explode with a nuclear detonation but the whole missile exploded causing enormous concern. Was this a Russian attack? Was it, um, There's a wonderful book by Eric Schlosser called Command and Control where he looks at the weaknesses of these systems. Be careful when you hear politicians from nuclear armed states up saying oh yes, we're getting rid of nuclear weapons. The second question is Yes, but are they modernising the ones that they've got and building a new generation of smaller, more usable, more targeted weapons?
1: And, of course, they don't have to have public examples of how they're testing them anymore, like in the ocean or in the atmosphere, they can do it with computers.
5: There's a lot more computer simulation and so on. And so we're seeing the United States although and Russia, although they've reduced the number of actual weapons and actual warheads, they have, in fact, modernised their fleets. Britain's had the same discussion uh, where there was a serious discussion about whether to modernise the Trident fleets. These are nuclear-armed submarines uh, that patrol the oceans with warheads um, to fire at, uh, at enemy targets. Um, and there's going to be a growing debate in, in the United Kingdom about this because many Tridents are based at Faslane in Scotland. And if, as seems likely, in the next you know, few years, there's going to be a move towards a second referendum for Scottish independence... The SNP, the, the dominant party in Scotland, has said that they want a nuclear-free Scotland and it may involve the relocation of US and UK military facilities, nuclear facilities, from uh, the uh, Faslane and other places, Holy Lock and so on, to Portsmouth or Bristol or some other place. That's going to be an interesting discussion when the, the citizens of Bristol are offered to host nuclear weapons in their in their harbour. They're going to say no and it's going to cause a real serious debate about the efficiency of, of the trident deterrent uh, that, that Britain holds. Same debate happening all over. But the world focuses in the media in Australia on the official enemies, on, uh, on uh, Iran, obviously, on North Korea. But little comment about uh, rogue states like uh, uh, Israel and uh, India that refuse to accept even the norms of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, let alone any more, anything more coherent. And as we can see... Uh, More than half the United Nations General Assembly, uh, indeed uh, getting towards two-thirds, now say, we can't wait. Let us act. Let us declare that we want to abolish nuclear weapons. And to pass a treaty calling for the banning of nuclear weapons is a step on that path. Won't happen overnight, but it certainly sets a standard and places pressure on the nuclear states to justify why they believe that extended nuclear deterrence, or indeed first-strike policies, are valid in the world in the 21st century.
1: What do you know about the opinions of the people in Japan when their government is siding with the United States, yet they're the the only country in the world that has suffered a nuclear weapon?
5: There's a growing debate. Uh, The Japanese peace movement's been relatively weak in in recent years, and uh, Shinzo Abe, the current uh, Prime Minister who's uh, been visiting Australia, is uh, very much moving to try and revise Japan's constitution which has Article 9, a provision of the Constitution, which limits Japan's army essentially as a self-defence force. It's been a bit of a fiction. Japan is one of the highest spending countries in the world on military services. It has an extensive army and navy and so on, but for many years they've been constrained from operating overseas. Abe is, is seeking to uh, uh, change a whole range of constitutional provisions, particularly Article 9, which stop the interoperability between Japanese forces and American. Obviously concerned about China, about North Korea, Japan is seeking much more to integrate with the United States and operate essentially as part of the, uh, the US uh, machine in the Western Pacific. Same debate happening in Australia, and we see that with the rotation of Marines through northern uh, the Northern Territory um, about, as I say, the interconnection of uh, our command and control systems through Pine Gap, through other bases in Australia with American uh, command and control networks. This notion of interoperability, of working together, sort of overrides the political decision, should we go to war? alongside the United Nations? Should we go all the way with LBJ? Should we follow George Bush up the Hindu Kush? We'll have to work out what we can do with Trump. Um, But, you know, these sort of are political questions and the the military want to interlock us so entirely with American doctrines, American techniques, American technology that we can't take independent positions uh, and that's, uh, you know, Australia has always pushed for greater engagement by the United States in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, They're quite anxious that Trump is talking about ripping up Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, uh, the trade agreement. We're about to enter interesting times.
1: And it's great to have um, journalist and researcher Nick McClellan back on 3CR. We'll be talking about the UN vote on settlements, the Israeli settlements soon. But first, let's hear from David Rovics.
5: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to
3: 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change.
1: On the 23rd of December, the United Nations Security Council, comprising 15 members, including five permanent members, which have the power to veto resolutions, voted to condemn Israel over new settlements in Palestinian territory. The resolution stated that the establishment of Israeli settlements in Palestinian territory, occupied since 1967, have no legal validity, constitute a flagrant violation under international law and are a major obstacle to a two-state solution. It was adopted with the 14 votes in favour to a round of applause. The US abstained, essentially allowing it to go through. Speaking at a ceremony at Sydney Central Synagogue, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull denounced the resolution as one-sided and deeply unsettling to our community. Writing in the Brisbane Courier-Mail newspaper, George Browning the former Anglican Bishop of Canberra and President of the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, wrote that for the pm to ally Australia with Israel against our ANSYS partners and almost the whole of the international community, raises troubling questions regarding his foreign policy priorities. I spoke with George recently and asked him first to explain what is meant by Israeli settlements – and when they were first established?
4: Jan, this is a very, very big question, and it goes back, really, uh, to the beginning of the 20th century when the life for Jews, in, um, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, became intolerable. We're talking about Poland and uh, the Baltic countries and various other places, Germany. And so a movement out of Europe into Palestine became increasingly a necessary option, but they began more in a social, in a socialist manner. The kibbutzes, while they were contained, as it were, and they were particularly for Jews. Nevertheless, they didn't have the same kind of imperialistic intent that is now now the case. These days, the settlers are largely economic. They're not refugees from persecution. They're more economic people who choose to take advantage of the very uh, attractive uh, conditions that Israel provides to settle, because Israel wants, ultimately, if it can, to have a majority of the population. Um, at the moment, it doesn't. And uh, because the Palestinian population grows more quickly than the Jewish population, it's always a struggle. So they are largely uh, economic people, they're professional people, they're people from Manhattan for goodness sake or from fairly wealthy places in in Europe and in the United States of America.
1: And of course this is occupied land.
4: Well of course it's occupied land and uh, those who say the settlements are not a barrier to a peace process are just talking through their hat. The reality is that while the settlements only take over three percent, four percent, six percent literally of the geographical space of the West Bank. It's not simply that, it's a matter that the infrastructure that, that attends them is a no go area for Palestinians. It means that for every new settler there's probably two or three new soldiers who spend their time on the West Bank is so called in the protection of the settlers from the Palestinians under international law, if you occupy territory, you are bound to to care for the, the needs of the civilian population. But the Israeli military does the complete opposite. It actually sees its role in protection of the illegal settlers, not in the caring for the uh, indigenous popu- the civil population that they've occupied. And with every new settler, there are a high proportion of ideological settlers, that is to say people who believe that the whole of the greater Israel, which means all of Palestine and probably even the Sinai, if they really have the chance, belongs under God to the chosen people, to the Jews. So those who have this ideological position, they have contempt for their Palestinian neighbours. And I've been there many times and all settlers carry guns and they harass the Palestinians whereas i've been in many palestinian homes i've never seen a weapon and it makes a lie of this whole business about what security is for and and so on the growth in the in the settlements is a huge difficulty and it it is completely crisscrossed the whole of the palestinian territory so that there are so many checkpoints to go from one place on the in the palestinian territories to another if you want to sell your Your olives or your produce or you want to visit your mother or you want to visit the other part of your farm, you have to go through various checkpoints that prevent adequate ease of access and so on. So the settlements are a massive, massive problem and the Palestinian authorities rightly say how can they enter into a peace conversation or a settlement conversation while Israel day by day takes more and more of their land.
1: Let's compare these so-called settlements with the Palestinian villages. There's no comparison, is there?
4: No. If you, as an Australian, were to visit the occupied territories, you can see the difference between the two. Number one, the settlements are condominiums of of a very high quality. They're they're largely built on the high ground. Uh, You can see water sprays irrigating the lawns. You can see the settlers cleaning their cars, washing their cars. Um, there is electricity available all the time, etc., etc. et cetera. The um, Palestinian towns and villages, some of them quite ancient, like Nablus and Ramallah, are in stark contrast to that. Um, they look poor and shabby. The, if you stay in them, you quickly realise that the water might be on or it might be off. And if it's on, you are only allocated something like 60 litres per person per day, whereas the settlers have 250 litres per person per day. If you're wanting to use the electricity, you might find in the night time it's just simply turned off, arbitrarily turned off, for no reason other than the the Israeli authorities decide that they won't have electricity in this particular area, and so on. So the two are quite different, and if you visit Bethlehem, it's almost now completely surrounded by these vast settlements, um, which are really extensions of Jerusalem itself, And the idea, I presume, eventually is to encircle this area so that it actually becomes, it probably already is, part of Israel rather than the Palestinian-occupied territory. Can
1: you explain the difference between the government-authorised settlements and the unauthorised outposts?
4: That difference is in the mind of the Israelis. In, In international law, all settlements are illegal. All settlements are illegal. Because it is occupied territory, and under international law, if you occupy a territory, you cannot move your civilian population into the area that is occupied. And now there are approximately 700,000 700, illegal settlers in Palestinian territory. The outposts are ones which have been settled, usually by ideological people, without permission of the Israeli government. Their distinction is not a a distinction in international law. In international law, all settlements are illegal.
1: The vote on the 23rd of December at the UN was significant for a a number of reasons, not least that the vote got through. In the past, how many other resolutions have been before the UN on this issue?
4: Uh, Countless, countless. And um, always... uh, There is a difference between a resolution that's in the General Assembly and a resolution that is in the Security Council... A resolution in the General Assembly is, if I could put it this way without being disrespectful, is the pious opinion of the, of the mover and, and, the, and the people who vote for it. it. It has no binding or legal authority, whereas a resolution from the Security Council is legally binding. There is care taken by the Israelis and the U.S. to ensure that nothing passes the Security Council that might be binding in terms of restricting israel's intentions in the palestinian territory for the last eight years or much much longer than that the the u.s has always vetoed there are the four or five major permanent members of the of the security council have a a veto vote and uh, the u.s has always used this veto vote to veto any motion in relation to israel palestine What is significant on this occasion is that they withheld their veto vote so that the vote was unanimous apart from the US's abstention. And the extraordinary thing is, of course, that Julie Bishop has said that if we were still the temporary member of the Security Council, which we were, we've now finished our term, if we were, we would have voted against it. We would have been the only country in the international community to have voted against the motion. Extraordinary.
1: Now, of the other... Members, The permanent members of the Security Council is, is France and the UK, both friends of Israel. Have they ever vetoed the no, vote as ne- well?
4: never. No, nor is China. So,
1: all right, well, why you, Why the US?
4: Why the US? Because for, oh, well, not only decades, but for more than a century, Jewish advocacy and American politics are intertwined and... The influence of the Jewish lobby in American politics is very, very significant. Uh, So much so that, as you know, this year we have the centenary of the Balfour Declaration. And the Balfour Declaration was a letter written by Britain's Foreign Secretary to Lord Rothschild, Balfour was his name, to Lord Rothschild, saying that if... The Jewish influence could encourage Woodrow Wilson to bring America into the war against Germany and its allies. Then, post the war, the Balfour Declaration said that Britain would do its best to encourage a homeland for the Jews in Palestine. So that indicates that the Jewish kind of political influence in America is not recent. It's been there for a long, long, long time. And the fact, the fact that Britain fought. That they would have so much influence to, to warrant the Bell, what's called the Balfour Declaration is quite extraordinary, really. But while well, I'm on this topic, by the way, the Balfour Declaration, which the centenary which is celebrated this year, says quite explicitly that if there is the establishment of, of a Jewish state, then in the, at that establishment, the rights, privileges of those who already live there, that is, the Palestinian people, must be protected. And that's exactly what hasn't happened.
1: Well, what you've just said about the US and Israel, can you explain why the US changed its historic stance and not vetoed?
4: That also, I think, is a a very big story. The, The whole situation in the Middle East is changing rapidly, and... As everybody knows, that last year, probably leading up to last year, America decided that it could no longer put up with Iran being a, a rogue state, that Iran needed to be brought into the responsible family of international nations. And so uh, a lot of effort was put into a deal to bring Iran into the family of, of nations. And uh, Israel strongly, strongly, strongly opposed this and gave America a very hard time as a result. So the, the Obama administration became frustrated with Israel over that matter. But secondly, uh, Obama, from his, in his first term, in, 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 indeed from his first inauguration, let alone his second one, he clearly had in his mind that he would have the capacity, part of his legacy, to bring about peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And, uh, as you know, John Kerry has been his main spokesperson for that, at least throughout his second term. And, clearly, he has become more and more frustrated. Every time he has in- attempted to do something to bring Israel to heel, Israel has spat in his face, particularly Netanyahu has. And you can remember that, on, for example, when John Kerry went to um, the Middle East for one of these significant conversations at the very time John Kerry was there, uh, Netanyahu announced the building of a massive new settlement on the territory, if, if presumably just to fly in the face of Obama and and uh, his administration. So uh, there had been growing, growing, growing frustration uh, over a long period of time, and uh, this came to a climax in the vote. I, I think myself that it was, a great uh, policy fault of, of Obama not to stand up to Israel from the very beginning of his term as president, to believe that he could talk them into being reasonable, seeing justice, seeing that uh, to see that Israel would be more secure if it was friendly rather than aggressive. He thought reason could play its part, but clearly it didn't, and his frustration mounted as a result.
1: You don't think that he waited till the end of his term to move on this because he was too pressured not to do it earlier
4: well there's that too um, because anything which curbs Israeli aggression and imperialism has, has consequences in internal uh, American politics we all know that and it does in Australia too you, you, on both sides of politics in Australia it is very very hard to get people to speak out about justice for Palestinians, even though it is clear that justice should prevail, it is very, very hard. The official position in Australia is that we support a two-state solution. But all the time that Israel refuses to do anything which could bring this about, we just remain silent. In fact, we're Israel's best friend, and so each time they do something like announce a new settlement, we still just pat them on the back. It's just extraordinary, really. And the position of the foreign minister, Julie Bishop, is that peace has to be a negotiation between the two parties. Well, this is just nonsense. We didn't expect Timor to negotiate with Indonesia. Of course, how can somebody as small as Timor negotiate with Indonesia? We actually intervened. Same and similarly in Kuwait. It wasn't our fight, but uh, when Kuwait was invaded, we didn't expect Kuwait to negotiate with Iraq. We actually intervened on their behalf. Now, why don't we do that with Palestine? It's just hypocritical, really, of us.
1: They maintain that this vote not going ahead was an obstacle to the two-state solution.
4: is actually completely the reverse. By telling Israel that it must stop its settlement program that uh, all settlements are illegal under international law this is in support of a two-state solution but the more that israel flaunts international law and continues to build the more difficult it will ever be to have a two-state solution as a matter of fact i think now and particularly with donald trump a two-state solution it's very hard to conceive how that is ever going to happen now and uh, indeed It's possible that what would seem to be ridiculous could now happen, that is, that Israel will unilaterally annex the Jordan Valley. Uh, And it appears that Trump looks as if he would support Israel doing that. Well, that is the end of of a two-state solution. But that's not the end of the matter, because if there is no two-state solution, then there is one state. And under international law, how can the international community support a situation in which Rights are not equal if there is one state, then all who reside in that one state, regardless of religion, ethnicity, gender, whatever else, they, under international law, should have equal rights and If they have equal rights, it would not be a Jewish state. What is the plot for America? what do they want to do, What do they want to happen here clearly, and what does Australia want to happen here because we're going down a path which really is very dangerous and Uh, It puts, uh, as John Kerry said recently, if there is to be one state, then it is either a Jewish state and undemocratic, or it is democratic and not a Jewish state.
1: Let's look at more of the reactions. You've spoken about Australia, what they would have done. What's Israel's reaction to this vote?
4: Well, Israel's. Israel's reaction is like a, um, I don't know how to describe it really, it's like a child who's been scolded for doing something absolutely uh, obnoxious. He's reacted like a little child. He made comments about other nations, uh, this, this, this suggestion that New Zealand has, as it were, almost declared war on Israel. How ridiculous is that? In fact, I think that New Zealand, in Supporting this vote it's actually been a true friend of Israel and, uh, rather than Australia because true friends actually tell their friend when they're behaving badly and they tell their friend what the consequences of behaving badly are likely to be. And if there is to be a solution to the Middle East problem, there's got to be a balance. And the balance is between the rights of Israel to exist and the rights of the Palestinians to actually live in freedom uh, with a chance of prosperity, etc., and at the moment, there is no balance. It's, uh, Israel takes whatever it can simply because it can.
1: Have we heard anything about the very prominent U.S. lobby in the U.S., their reaction to this?
4: Well, what we probably don't realise, what Australians don't realise, is that America has quite a strong liberal Jewish lobby as well, so that it is not all voices uh, are supporting Netanyahu, quite the reverse. And similarly, in Australia, their... Um, There are many Jewish lobbies who, many Jewish people who uh, find Israel's tactic and uh, argument abhorrent. And uh, I preside over a network called the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network, and many of its members are members of the Jewish community who find the behaviour of Israel to be to undermine ethically the values of the Jewish people. And how how can a nation or a people who, who suffered some of the greatest suffering ever imposed upon humanity in the Holocaust or the Shoah, how can those people then impose similar suffering on other people? It's beyond imagining, really.
1: There is a suggestion that there could be fresh vigour for the BDS campaign. Do you believe that's possible?
4: Yes, it, it is possible. The reason why Israel is so opposed to the BDS Is because it is effective. Um, If it wasn't effective, they wouldn't worry about it. But it it is effective. And it is called by the Israeli lobby anti-Semitic. Well, don't be misled by that call. As I've said frequently enough, if you are oppressed, either as an individual or as a nation, you only really have three options. One is to resist that oppression violently, to resist it non-violently, or just to lay down and take it and presumably Israel expects the Palestinians simply to lay down and take it. Well, that's not not acceptable. So there are any, uh, the, the two alternatives are violent resistance or non-violent resistance, and BDS happens to be a very effective tool of non-violent resistance, and for that reason I support it.
1: The trouble is with the US, though, that even though they've gone, I suppose, against Israel on this issue, the amount of money that they the US government pours into Israel every year, but it's not just the government, it's the citizens of the US, many citizens who, are, who keep this country alive.
4: That's absolutely correct. And, and that's why having a voice in Australia about it is our business because we claim Israel as our best friend and we, we claim America to be our most important ally. And so we can't turn our back on this issue And in in relation to money, Jan, there are two or three very puzzling things. And one is that there is a movement called Christian Zionism. And Christian Zionism is alive and very strong, particularly in the southern parts of the United States of America. And Christian Zionism is a perverted Christian doctrine which believes that in order for Christ to return, uh, Israel needs to resume or take its boundaries so that they include what you might call the so-called in inverted commas historic biblical boundaries of israel uh, which includes Judea, judea and samaria uh, the west bank well this is a, an obscene doctrine and even if it wasn't an obscene doctrine it's an obscene piece of psychology because really the christian zionists are not really wanting uh, israel to prosper they're actually wanting an outcome in order to, for the end of the world, for the parousia, for Christ to return. It's just obscene. But mm, the Christian Zionist lobby does provide a significant amount of money. And unfortunately, in Australia, many of the more right-wing or conservative churches support Israel because of this view.
1: Talk for a few moments on the recent visit to Israel of members of the Australian Parliament. It's not an unusual thing, is it?
4: No. For a long time now, Israel has done its best to encourage Australians with some influence, not simply parliamentarians, but business people, journalists, etc., to visit Israel. And it isn't just an invitation. It's a paid invitation. So it's a freebie. And um, all state politicians receive the invitation as do federal politicians, and indeed prospective ones do as well, and large numbers of them accept. Not to accept is probably unusual, and it it um, comes from a principled position. But those who accept go for, I'm not sure, five, six, seven days, and clearly they come back with a sense of obligation to speak on behalf of Israel. Those who go will argue that it's balanced trip because they have... Um, A visit to Ramallah. Well, the visit to Ramallah is is three hours or whatever it is. It's a bit like a a drama or a play. It's all choreographed to make sure that the right things are said and the right people are seen, etc. Our argument from APAN is that if somebody does accept one of these trips, then morally and ethically they ought to spend as much time in the Palestinian territories visiting people in all walks of life so that they can actually gain a genuinely balanced view. At the moment, that doesn't happen. So the vast majority of Australian politicians are, are either have been to Israel, they're invited to go to Israel, and they, as a result, feel uh, obliged to speak on behalf of Israel.
1: And, of course, the mass media or the, the mainstream media is there to report on, well, just the the, the visit by Shorten saying the aura of Israel unites us.
4: Yeah, well, what, what on earth does that mean? Well, what a ridiculous statement to make. What is the awe of Israel that unites us? Uh, is he talking about the Holocaust, is he? Uh, what, what is it that he's talking about? Because what what actually divides us is the very injustice that's inflicted upon 5.7 or whatever it is, million Palestinians who have no voice. For him to say that is to say, Israel... or Jews uh, are historically the world's victims, and we are united behind victims. Well, Palestinians are the victims here. How are we being united in this matter? It's ridiculous.
1: I was going to finish by asking you about the legacy of Obama, but I think you've already answered that question.
4: Yeah, I think history will treat Barack Obama well. What has to be borne in mind is that The poor guy, I shouldn't say the poor guy for the most powerful person in the world, but the poor guy has been inflicted with a hostile Senate and a hostile Congress. And uh, so he has really had both hands tied behind his back in terms of of genuine policy for change. And uh, what the world is going to look like now in four years' time, or God help us, eight years' time, goodness only knows.
1: And you've been listening to George Browning, who's the former... Bishop of Canberra and presently the President of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at four. Bye for now.